The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. When I first began preaching, when I began my ministry as a pastor at a small in a small Southern Baptist church up in New England, one of the dear ladies in the church up there made an embroidered cloth that hung down from the pulpit, and it was beautiful. It had our church logo on it. It was it was just done in a in a wonderful way, and it had two little Velcro pieces at the top which stuck across, and so there was a little strip of fabric that went across here at the top that enabled it to be stuck there. And she didn't waste that space. You know what she embroidered in that space up there? She embroidered, step aside, sir, that they may see Jesus. And every time I went up to preach, I had to look at that. (laughs) Step aside, sir, that they may see Jesus. I want to do that today. The Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest preacher in all history. And this sermon is one of his greatest sermons. It's pure doctrine right from the lips of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's going to be taking you, his people, through some difficult things over the next few weeks that I preach. He's going to be taking you through a tour of the sinfulness of the human heart. He began the Sermon on the Mount. If he were here, the first thing he would say to you is the first thing he said to his disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, we spent time on that, haven't we? We know what that means. Blessed are the poor in spirit means blessed are the spiritual beggars, those who know their brokenness, know their need of Jesus Christ. Well, if that's true, and if theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of heaven, then what is the great enemy of the kingdom of heaven? Spiritual pride, arrogance, an attitude that says, I don't need God, I don't need a savior, I'm fine just the way I am. It's the greatest enemy of the soul. And do you know what God gave for that enemy? The law. The law of God. And today, Jesus Christ, if he were here, and I'm hoping that I will be able to step aside and let him preach this, He would take the law in his hands the way a master musician would take a violin or a beautiful song, like we heard earlier, and just play it into your heart. But it wouldn't have that soothing feel. It wouldn't have that comforting feel. It would bring you to conviction. It would bring you to spiritual brokenness. It would bring you to your knees. It would bring you to him. To say, oh, save me, Lord. Wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this heart? such as it is. That's what he would do with the law. And that's what I'm hoping to do with the law today. I'm hoping to bring the law and bring it right into your heart. Now, it's amazing to me the deceptiveness of the human heart. It's amazing the deceptiveness of my own heart. It's a twisted, wicked thing. It really is. Always trying to wriggle out of conviction. Recently, I had the privilege of going to Washington, D.C. for a conference, and I got to see the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Hadn't seen them in a while. They're still there. Everything's fine. All right? Uh, The Magna Carta is there, too. Ross Perot donated it, and it's doing well as well. So I wonder why he was so generous to let... But it says his name in big letters there. Ross Perot donated this, so there it is, and you can all read it. But one of the interesting little documents that I saw while I was there was a letter written by John Dillinger. How many of you have heard of John Dillinger? John Dillinger was one of the most notorious bank robbers in American history. Lived around the time of the Depression. On December 28, 1933, the Chicago Police Department... Uh, declared him to be public enemy number one. 
Now, that's quite an honor. I mean, when you stop to think about it, all the criminals in the Chicago area to be declared public enemy number one. But the reason was that he was consistently embarrassing the law enforcement officials. He was always able, it seems, to wriggle out of any nets, and he continued to rob banks day after day after day. People were killed. It was just a terrible time. FBI got involved. Will, I wasn't going to tell you this one, but Will Rogers said so many innocent bystanders were shot by police as they were chasing... Uh, this is terrible. Bill, uh, Dillinger, that they said, Will Rogers said, well, sooner or later, Dillinger's going to stand next to an innocent bystander, and then he'll be shot and killed. <laughs> so, but he was making a mockery of all of, the, all of the law enforcement officials, and so they declared him public enemy number one. Well, he wrote a letter in which he said, and it's there in the National Archives, along with the Magna Carta and some other interesting tidbits from our history. And this is what he said. I guess my only bad habit is robbing banks. I smoke very little and don't drink very much. Isn't that amazing? What is that? That is self-righteousness. He looks at himself and he passes the test. Now, it's a pretty feeble test. Robbing banks is okay. So is smoking and drinking in small amounts. Beyond that, we have no other standards. Isn't that remarkable? Well, I think that all of us do that to some degree. We make rules and regulations. We have our own laws. We keep them sometimes. And we basically have a good assessment of ourselves. Jesus comes in like a lightning bolt to shatter that with the law. It is the enemy of your soul because you will not seek salvation if you live in that attitude. Jesus said to me, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Don't you want to know now if that's what God thinks about you? Don't you want to know today when there's still time, when today is the day of salvation? Don't you want to know today? Well, listen then to the law. And what Jesus is going to do for the rest of this chapter, we're going to just look at the first section of it today, uh, verses 21 through 26. We're going to skip a week next week and then get back to it. We're going to look and see what Jesus does with the law. And it is not going to be pleasing. It is not going to be easy, but it's going to be effective. He's going to strip away self-righteousness by giving you a true look at your own heart. He's going to take you through some case studies, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, enemies. These kinds of things. Not pleasant topics, but we need it to be done. And so he's going to do it. And as we look through these case studies, we're going to see four themes coming out again and again. The first is Jesus Christ's authority. The authority of Jesus Christ. The right he has to speak to our hearts. To some degree, I'd like him to do that. I want to step aside and let him speak authoritatively. That you see it is Jesus who has the right to tell you what your heart is like. Because he knows your heart. For me, I'm just a pastor. I can't read your heart. But Jesus, he knows what's in your heart, just like he knows what's in mine. And we see the authority of Jesus Christ. Time and again, he's going to say, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I say to you. Isn't that a statement of authority? You have heard that it was said, but I say this. Now, this is all a fulfillment of what Jesus said. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm going to fulfill the work of the law and prophets in my ministry. And then he issues this incredible statement. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have to do better than them. And so Jesus is issuing authoritative statements because he has the right to do it. And this point was not lost. If you look at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the last two words, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, skip to the next black letters after Jesus finished. Verse 28 of chapter 7, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were amazed 
at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus had authority and he just spoke to them as king, the king of the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of the entire gospel, familiar verses, mentioned earlier in baptism today, the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That is authority. Jesus Christ has authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And therefore, he has a right to speak to us today. The second theme is the struggle between Christ's teaching and that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. You have heard that it was said really could be translated of or by the people long ago. In other words, by these false teachers. You have heard that it was said by these old folks who came beforehand, the authorities who went before me, but I say to you such and such. And Jesus is going to sweep away the false understanding that the Pharisees and Sadducees had planted in the minds of the people. What they had done with the law of God. And what had they done with the law of God? They pulled it down to make it attainable if you just worked at it. If you just worked hard enough, and what would that do to self-righteousness? Pumped it right up through the heavens. It did the exact opposite thing to what God had intended when he gave the law. And how did they do this? Well, every single week they got up in the synagogue, these authority figures, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they read the Hebrew scriptures. Now, that was a problem for you, number one, because you didn't own the scriptures. You could never have afforded the scroll. They didn't have Xerox machines or Kinkos or anything like that. They just had the one scroll and then it was copied by hand. And the cost of that was prohibitive. So only the teachers had the scriptures. You ought to praise God every day. You can reach down from that shelf and get that Bible and read it for yourself. You don't understand what percentage of people who have really loved Jesus and love God with all their heart have not had that, had that privilege. But we have it, don't we? We may even have seven or eight different translations in the English language. Do you read it, though? That's the question. But anyway, they had to go and they had the scriptures in Hebrew and many of them didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Slightly different, but it's like about the difference between Spanish and English. S significant enough. And so what would happen, ha have to happen is they'd have to be translated right there. And, and they wouldn't just translate it straight. They'd, they'd mix in some of their own opinions so that they were, they were not getting the true word of God. So Jesus is going through and he says of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, he says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. He's going to go through and he's going to weed the garden. And he's going to pull out all these false understandings about the law. The third major theme in the second half of chapter 5 is that of, I believe, the entire, God, the entire Sermon on the Mount. Heart righteousness. Heart righteousness. A righteousness that comes from within. A righteousness that stands up to judgment day. A righteousness which only God can give. It's a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Heart righteousness. Not external righteousness, the kind where you kind of arrange the law and make it workable for yourself. So you feel good about yourself. When you read through the second half of Matthew 5, you should not feel good about yourself. You should feel convicted and become a spiritual beggar. You should be broken. You should come to Christ. You should grieve over sin and allow him to heal you and work with you. That's what should happen. But he wants heart righteousness, and so he's going to zero in at the heart. You have heard that it was said, do not commit murder, but I say to you, don't get angry. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I go beyond that and I say, don't even lust. You see, he goes right to the heart. And why? Because he's going to look at the heart on Judgment Day. Do you know who your judge is going to be? Do you know who's going to sit in judgment on you? Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, he says that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. 
that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father who sent him. Jesus will judge you. And he's telling you what the standards of judgment will be. All you have to do is look at the last verse of chapter 5. Matthew 5.48. It's really printed there. I didn't make it up. Matthew 5.48. You must be what? Perfect. Perfect at how perfect? 50% perfect? 75? No, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus Christ says so. And if you're not that perfect in righteousness, you won't go to heaven. That should bring you back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That should break you. It should make you say, oh God, I need a Savior. Oh God, keep working in my life. You must be perfect as your heavenly... Are you, are you that perfect yet? Well, there's more work to be done, isn't there? There's more work. I am not taking away from justification by faith. Of course you're justified by faith. Only those who are justified can actually see sanctification, changes going on in their hearts. The rest of it is just, in my opinion, moral rearrangement. Like cleaning the attic and a week later it needs cleaning again. All right? Jesus can give you a righteousness that is as righteous as God himself. But he's the only one that can do it. Heart righteousness. The fourth theme is the false teaching of the Sadducees about the law. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. What is the law given for? You already know. I've told you. It's to break you down and to show you God's pattern for righteousness. You, you get broken down. You get brought back to verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he brings you back to law and shows you what kind of a life you can really have. A life free from anger. Wouldn't you like a life free from anger? Wouldn't you like to live the rest of your life and never be angry again? Except for those things that God gets angry at. I want to be angry about the things that anger God. But I don't want any more of that unrighteous anger that has characterized my life. Wouldn't you like to live the rest of your life without lust? Wouldn't you like to live in a marriage relationship that is just the way God intended when he set up marriage? Wouldn't you like that kind of a life? Wouldn't you like to let your yes be yes and your no, no? Wouldn't you like to be the kind of person that people know your word is your bond? Wouldn't you like that kind of a life? Wouldn't you like the power in your heart to turn the other cheek when someone smashes you? Wouldn't you like to be like Jesus? That's what he's bringing you through. So first you get broken down and then he brings you back to the law and shows you a new kind of life that you've never seen before. And does he intend for you to live that kind of life? Yes. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and ignores them, it's like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. But the people who hear these words of mine and put them into practice, I mean, they really live them. They've got that house built on the foundation and they're going to stand. And you know what that storm is? That's judgment day, folks. It's going to test everything. And it's coming for each one of us. And Jesus is showing us how to be ready for it. Those are four themes. Now let's look at the first case study. Anger. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder... And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. That's what Jesus has to say about murder. Now, he begins to strip it away, doesn't he? You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. Well, doesn't the scripture say that? Well, not exactly that. It just says you shall not murder. They added, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
Is it true that anyone who murders will be subject to judgment? Yes. But what they were doing is they were taking the mind off the eternal judgment of God and thinking about earthly consequences. If you murder, you'll get into trouble. You'll have problems. You'll be brought before the Sanhedrin. You'll have difficulties. (laughs) Jesus says, no, there's another judgment, a deeper one. And the standard there isn't just murder. How many of you can pass the did you ever murder test? Probably most of us. How many of you can pass the did you ever get angry test? None of us. You see? And so Jesus takes it and brings it right down to the heart of the matter. And why? Because we're so we're focused on earth, aren't we? We're focused on earthly things. And he wants us to be ready. He wants us to be ready for judgment. Because judgment is coming. And he wants you to know what the standards will be. So now we're talking about anger. Not just murder. By the way, when was the last time you called a brother or sister Raka? Has it been a while? So you're free. You're not going to get dragged in front of the Sanhedrin. I'm not sure where the Sanhedrin is anyway. So that's been abolished just like Raka has. Okay? It just means empty head, idiot, fool, this kind of thing. It's a language or a word of contempt. And so what happens here? Jesus is taking you through somewhat the stages of anger. There's, there's that first anger that comes in your heart at a brother or a sister. And then after that come expressions of contempt out of your mouth. These are of different categories. It's not just a matter of raka or you fool. It's not just that. It's, you could begin to slander, do some character assassination, tell some stories. Just use your mouth to destroy that person. We all do it. To our shame, we all do it. But it starts with that anger and then it comes out into expressions of contempt. We've taken another step toward murder. You say, I'd never murder. Well, I actually don't say that kind of thing anymore. I, don't say, I say there's, any, there's no sin I'm not capable of committing. God has shown me by the law that I am a sinner. And there is therefore no sin that I'm not capable of committing. I can't look at somebody and say, I'd never do that. There's nothing like that. I could be manipulated into a set of circumstances where I'd do things I ordinarily wouldn't do. But it's me. It's in there. And if I would get angry, then I would murder. So says Jesus. And so we've come to that stage. And then ultimately it does lead to murder. Well, then there's the judgment. Now, we've talked about the Sanhedrin. We've talked about the fact you might get in trouble. You might get arrested. But Jesus is pulling our mind off that, isn't he? He's pulling to a a deeper concern. And that is judgment day and eternal condemnation in hell. Judgment day and eternal condemnation in hell. Is that not what Jesus is talking about here? Yes, he is. He says, all right, you're answerable to the Sanhedrin, but I tell you, you're in danger of the fire of hell if you say, you fool. Does that seem too harsh? This is the judge speaking. He's speaking to us with authority. He has the right to tell us this. And so he speaks these words. Hebrews 4.13 says very plainly, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, when Jesus is talking about hell, he uses the word hinnom or Gehenna. What this is, this was a valley, a ravine, which was just south of Jerusalem. And there in olden times and past times, certain kings had used that place to sacrifice their children in the fire to the god Molech. Can you imagine what kind of evil that is? Well, one good king came along and put an end to that practice. But then it became filled with garbage and then they just burned it like a, like a dump. And it was burning all the time, constantly. And Jesus is using, therefore, a word picture of hell, Gehenna. Now, Jesus taught much on hell. He taught more on hell than we do. Have you noticed that? He spoke more about hell than modern preachers do. Why is that? Well, it might have something to do with that tickling of the ears we talked about in 2 Timothy. It's not easy to preach that kind of thing. But Jesus wanted it done and therefore he spoke it because it was the honest truth. 
And I've taken, I've looked through the teaching on hell and I've broken it down to three things. Hell is, number one, first and foremost, a place of separation from God. Jesus talks about outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The darkness implies total absence from God, really a total absence of fellowship from anyone. I've shared the gospel with many people and they say they're not afraid of hell. All their buddies are going to be there. They can party together. What a terrible thing. There's no promise of that. You're in total isolation. That's what total darkness means. There's no buddies. There's just you. Total separated from God. Totally separated from God. Number two, it's a place of torment. It's not just a place of separation. It's a place of torment. A place of punishment. Jesus says so. In Luke 16, he talks about the rich man who is in hell being in torment, lifted his eyes and hoped that somebody would come and cool his tongue with water. That's Jesus' teaching. The third point is that it is eternal. It is as everlasting as heaven is. In uh, the story of the sheep and the goats, Jesus says, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Just like he said, Come, you who are blessed, into eternal life prepared for you who have loved me. This is the kind of thing. Heaven and hell are equally eternal. And so we should be afraid. Jesus said so. He said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Be afraid of him. Jesus taught on hell, and why? Because, number one, it's true. Number two, we are in danger of it. And number three, because he loves us. Because he loves us. Jesus took, for any of you who believe in him, took your hell on himself on the cross. That's what the cross was. It was your punishment in hell suffered on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he said. He was suffering your hell if you believe in him, if you receive. Well, what is Christ's application in reference to anger? It's simple. Get rid of it. Get rid of it immediately. Anger is dangerous. Get rid of it. Verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. It takes priority over everything. Take priority over worship. If you're there to worship, I don't want it. If you're out of fellowship with somebody, if there's a broken relationship, don't bother. Make the relationship right, then come and offer your gifts, says Jesus. That's the priority. Jesus' application is simple. Get rid of anger. And he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with them on the way. The, the idea is before you get sucked into the legal system and things get out of your control, before you get to that point, be reconciled with your brother or with your sister. Don't let it go. Deal with it now. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you're not going to get out until you pay the last penny. And the problem is, you're in jail, you can't earn any money. You'll never get out. Never get out. It's eternal. Well, this is a serious warning, isn't it? What's our own modern application? Well, first I want to speak to you who are Christians. The application is what Jesus said. Get rid of anger. Get rid of it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of it. It says the same thing in Colossians. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice and slander. Get rid of it. Is that, is that possible? Does anger kind of have a handle on it that you can just pick up and carry away? Is that something that you can do? Well, if you're a Christian, you're able to get rid of it. It says in James 1.19, it says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. That's what human anger is. Get rid of it, it says. It's so different from God. See, God gets angry because of righteousness. 
because of righteousness sake. We get angry for a variety of reasons. Think of why you get angry. I'll tell you a time I got angry. I was driving through the streets of Boston, driving around looking for a parking place. It is harder to find a parking place in Boston than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I looked and looked and I finally were driving around and I saw a spot. I pulled over there, I put the blinker on, I started to pull in and at the last second, somebody in a sporty car, sportier than mine, slipped in there right in front of me. My reaction was I prayed for them. I said, boy, there's a person who really needs the Lord. Was that my reaction? No, don't you believe it. Those who know me best know that that was not my reaction. I got angry. But it wasn't God's anger. It really wasn't. What is it that makes me angry? I'll just open my soul to you. Pride makes me angry. Somebody criticizes me, I want to react. That's probably the number one. Do you know what the second sin in the Bible was? The first was Adam and Eve and all that. Do you know what the second was? It was murder, right? No, no, no. Close. It was anger. Cain looked at his brother Abel's sacrifice. It was better than his. God didn't accept him. And what did Cain do? He got angry about it. And why? Because of pride, because of jealousy. I think pride is actually, if I look at the proverbial pie chart, it's probably the biggest chunk of why I get angry is somebody stepped on my pride. But there's other sectors in there too. Inconvenience. If somebody inconveniences me, like that guy slipping in there in that parking place, I feel anger. Covetousness makes me feel angry. If I see something that somebody else has and I want it and I feel jealous, I might get angry about it. Uh, frustrated pleasure makes me angry. If I see a basketball team win all these games and then at the last minute lose the... Never mind. I'm sorry. That can do it too. I mean, you, you want to watch something or relax and your neighbor mows their lawn and you get angry about it. There's all kinds of reasons to get angry. Well, what I'm saying to you is you say, how do I get rid of it? Just do it. If you're a Christian, you have the power to do it. You think you don't? Let me tell you how you do. You're in the middle of having one of those discussions, those family discussions. Do you know what I'm talking about? How many of you ever had those kind of family discussions? No, you don't need, I'll do it, but you don't need to. I, all right, family discussions. You're in the middle. You, you've reached a certain level or pitch and the phone rings. And you pick up the phone and you say, hello? Oh, it's so wonderful to hear from you. How? Oh, yes, we're all fine. We're doing great. What happened there? Self-control. You exerted self-control at a key moment. It didn't matter how hot you were. When that phone rang, self-control kicked in. Why? Because of your pride. You don't want to display your carnality to everyone. And so you, it kicks in there. But what that shows you, it's a secret. It shows that you're able to do it any time. If you're being angry, you can stop any time if you're a Christian. May I suggest to you, if you're having one of those things, don't wait for the phone to ring. Just say, whoa, 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 wait, wait. If Jesus were here, I wouldn't be doing this. Let's stop. Let's pray. Let's bring this before God. Is there anything here that should divide us? We're going to spend eternity together in heaven. Let's pray together. Let's put the anger aside. That's how you get rid of it. You just take it out. Well... That's very practical, but if I can tell you something, Christianity is not morality. There's lots of religions that could stand and tell you, don't be angry, etc. Instead, I want you to look back to your heart as we complete today. As we look at it, I want you to take the thing back to your heart and ask, what is it about me that makes me angry? Grieve over your heart. Test your heart. Be sure that you're a Christian. Jesus said, if you're more characterized by anger than you are getting rid of anger, you may not be a Christian. Don't be surprised on Judgment Day. Come back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount as a spiritually broken person 
and give yourself to Christ. Say, oh Lord, wretched man, wretched woman that I am, I need you as a Savior. Don't put it off. I've given you strong warnings today. A warning about hell. I did not make them up. They're written here. It's been here testifying to the church for 2,000 years. It's still true. Be afraid of it. Come to faith in Christ. For those of you who are already free from that condemnation, come to Christ for your sanctification. Look to Him to help you get control over anger. Let not anger characterize your home life, your heart life, any part of your life. Let Jesus work His peace in you as only He can. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.